This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we're going to look at the issues surrounding school reopening, first at the K-12 level with Joel Jordan, and then with the rush to bring students back to campuses in some form with Constance Henley, and she's going to do it at the university level. The push to reopen comes from both the corporate and government sector, though the American Academy of Pediatrics has also stated that students do better socially, emotionally, and academically in physical schools. Of course, the key in a pandemic that is surging and not leveling is safety for all concerned, and that means not just students, but teachers, staff, and their families that they go home to. So for business and government, the push to reopen is all about the economy and freeing up workers from childcare so they can return to work. At the university level, the issues are somewhat different, but faculties across the board have questioned their institutions changing plans, rationales, lack of faculty input in making decisions that affect their livelihood and health security. We're going to talk first to Joel Jordan, who is helping to coordinate a coalition of the largest teachers unions in the state about the case against school reopening and some alternatives, and then to Constant Penley to get the case for California's universities. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Joel Jordan back with me to discuss the issue or to make the case against schools reopening at the K through 12 level. Joel is a retired LAUSD high school teacher. He is the former UTLA, United Teachers of Los Angeles, Director of Special Projects. He's been on this program several times to talk about UTLA issues and strike. He's currently helping to coordinate the California Alliance for Community Schools, and that's a coalition of many of the largest urban teachers unions in the state. And we're going to be talking about what they're feeling in terms of the reopening. So welcome to Jackman Radio, Joel Jordan. Great to be here, Susie. Thanks so much. And so let's just get into it. As everyone knows, President Trump has made school openings a big issue, criticizing the CDC guidelines on school reopening as too strict and too expensive. We've heard today just in the New York Times that it's just we need much more money, not less. But Trump says that he'll be putting pressure on governors to open them up and has even threatened to cut funding to schools if they don't, just the opposite of what is needed, of course. And he's also accusing teachers unions and school districts of resisting school openings to undermine his election chances, which are based on economic recovery, since many workers are at home with their children rather than going to work. And he's doing this in the middle of an exponentially rising viral surge throughout the country that is even forcing Trump supporting governors to call for pauses in opening up the economy and canceling some of the rallies that he's trying to hold. So I guess the first thing, Joel, is this just Trump being Trump or is there something more going on here? Well, let me uh, try to give a little bit of context for Trump's behavior here. What's this about the CDC that he's so upset about? Well, what he's upset about is that the CDC guidelines, the ones that they initially gave in May, and which he had signed on to actually, were actually virus suppression guidelines. They were basically ones that said, in order to reopen any of the economy, and that includes schools, that you had to have a near zero, no community spread and a near zero incident of the virus, near zero incidence of hospitalizations and so forth. From that, then you could institute a very robust virus testing and tracing program, contract tracing program, that would, if not kill the virus, then make it certainly manageable, manageable enough that you could reopen the economies. And that suppression strategy was what the CDC guidelines were based on. And that is what, of course, Trump is pushing up against because he wanted and has been somewhat successful, and I'll get into that, in getting state and local governments to go along 
with an opening strategy that violates the CDC guidelines. So now Susie has already indicated why that is. He wants to get elected. And for him, the most important thing is that he was basing this on before the uh, virus itself was that we had a strong economy. So now that argument no longer holds weight, but he's trying to revive it with this. And he's being egged on by his political base who are evangelicals, people who are the evangelicals who want to have uh, church meetings where they can sing and shout and do whatever they need to do, even though it's been shown that this contributes to the virus, especially now that it's been proven that it's airborne. Secondly, there you have people that are anti-science, that are distrustful of scientists and scientific guidance or proposals. You have people who are anti-government, uh, people who are into individual freedom, even if it violates other people's freedom. So you have these factors that are kind of egging him on and that are giving him support. And then you have small businesses that are sort of desperate to reopen because many of them really are subject to being going bankrupt if, if they can't open. And then you have right-wing business lobby groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, that has actually been promoting some of the uh, opening protests around the country that we've seen in the last several months and that represent uh, many small but also very large businesses. And then finally, you have the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which, of course, is mostly interested in liability protection because uh, many of the, the biggest corporations in the country, as we know, have not been providing proper safety equipment, PPE for essential workers, uh, and don't want to be held legally liable for that. And then finally, there's the diffusion of responsibility rather than the federal government, which has been the case in other countries where uh, that have really handled this better. What Trump has done has been to push everything down to the states. And then many of the states, including California, have pushed responsibility for the reopening to local health authorities who have been under unbelievable pressure to relax guidelines that are actually necessary if we want to actually get a hold of this virus and contain it. So uh, just one example, Dr. Nicole Quick, who was the chief health officer in Orange County, was put under unbelievable pressure, including death threats, forced to resign from her position because she had mandated in Orange County that everyone wear masks. And then the new chief health officer who replaced her after she resigned then made it voluntary. So what this has all led to has been the loosening of state and county health guidelines on reopening, which is what's getting us into the problem to begin with. I mean, Governor Newsom says, oh, it's not policy, it's behavior, it's people's irresponsible behavior that's the cause of this. And there is some truth to the fact that there is irresponsible behavior going on, but that's because policy has been to allow reopenings not according to a suppression strategy, which is what the CDC guidelines were, but actually according to these looser guidelines that really allow for an increase in the viruses. But as long as it doesn't increase a certain amount, there are certain guidelines that you can, you can check out if you go online and, and, and look at the California Department of Public Health guidelines. They are much looser than the CDC guidelines. So and that's what's led us to the, this current disaster and what's led us to this whole led us to this whole issue of reopening schools. It's in the context of reopening the economy under irresponsible, permissive guidelines that basically have got us into this mess to begin with. And it's really quite incredible. I'm glad you explained the role of the passing the buck from the federal government to the states, to the locals, and then to the health departments. Barbara Ferrer here in Los Angeles has also said that she gets multiple death threats. And of course, as we know, if there's leadership at the top, this could be a public health campaign and it wouldn't be like this at all, but there isn't. Or let's say there's not leadership, there's misleadership and contradictory information, as we well know. And it really brings me, Joel, to the next question, because Trump counters those who say uh, that we can't open by pointing to Europe and their example, because he says they opened up with no trouble and that we should follow their example. So how would you respond to that? And I had, you know, Mike Seltzer on here several weeks ago in Norway, they flattened the curve and then they cautiously reopened. But, you know, these are steps that they do, as you said, steps that the CDC and other health organizations around the world, WHO, 
are recommending, which you know is all about testing and contact tracing, taking temperatures and hygiene and masks, all of those things. And here we have this sense for a lot of people that opening up means just back to normal and no precautions. How do you respond to this issue of what, uh, you know, about what Trump's saying about Europe? Well, of course, what, what he's conveniently leaving out is just what you said. He's leaving out the fact that they reopened schools. And by the way, did it very cautiously, usually starting with uh, younger students and so forth, only when the virus had been suppressed. So what's being lost here is in Europe, for instance, and in other countries where they started reopening schools relatively safely, they did it when there was very low incidence of the virus. So what he's not mentioning is the fact that he wants the schools to reopen when it's a surge going on. If you look at a graph, for instance, of the virus in Europe compared to the United States, you can see that the incidence of virus in Europe and we know, as we know, it was very high. You know, we know that all the, about the deaths and tragedy in Italy and in other uh, countries in Europe. But that since then, the virus has been pretty much, pretty much contained, and not only contained, but very robust testing and contract tracing has been instituted throughout those countries. So, with that, they've cautiously reopen the schools. But the very idea of reopening the schools in the context of the United States right now, where the virus was never contained, and there was never a vigorous testing and tracing program put into place in the United States, for all the reasons that we know we don't have time to get into on the program here. But but just the contrast is enormous. So for him to say, they did it there, we should do it here, is uh, absolutely absurd, because they only did it because they had suppressed the virus. And by the way, one of the ironies of this is that the argument that you need to do this, open the schools and open the economy to make the economies better has been disproven by actually a lot of data now that shows that countries that have responsibly dealt with the virus are actually doing better than countries that have not, like Sweden, where the uh, leadership pursuing this herd immunity idea as if that was going to resolve the issue in their country, and it didn't. It resulted in way more deaths and hospitalizations and disease, but also the economy has not done well, because fact of the matter is the economy depends on people having confidence in being able to go out into the society, and if they think that the virus is rampant, they're less likely to do so and less likely to consume. And it's really quite incredible in the Swedish case to uh, Joel, because in order to get herd immunity, you need 80 or 90% infection rate throughout the population. And there's still not a really good, or we maybe not one really good serology test, antibody test. So this is just pie in the sky and more of the same about the economy. You know, you are helping to coordinate the response from unions and This issue, I just wonder if the issue of what the American Pediatric Association has said is something that you're discussing in terms of distance learning, and and it brings up so many other issues, too. First of all, childcare is the main issue for those whose parents have to go to work. There's also, like, in the period from March till the end of the uh, school year in Los Angeles, Only one third of kids did not go online. And we just have to assume that's because they don't have internet access or do not have computers and that sort of thing. So I just wondered, you know, what you would have to say about, let's say, the issue of what's good for students versus the dangers of the pandemic. And then the other issue as well about what school superintendents and school boards have said about this. So let's let's talk about the pediatricians. Uh, First of all, they are absolutely right about distance learning being inferior, an inferior form of education to in-person learning. For all the reasons that they said, they're totally right. And in fact, they make a point quite right again that distance learning has had a negative impact, especially on low-income children, on black and brown children especially. And it is absolutely the right thing to do if you can do it to go back to in-person schooling. Now, what's wrong about what... Now, they have, in order to bolster their argument on this, they have said that younger children, in fact, are less susceptible to the virus and less likely to spread it. The problem with that position has been that, number one, 
it really has not been established by through scientific research that that is the case. And there's something in, or in healthcare called a precautionary principle that you don't do something that might be dangerous, take those kinds of risks, unless you have a much better idea that it would not be so risky. But even that position has been kind of exploded by what we've seen now in the reports that have come out just less than two weeks ago in Texas and in Oregon, where in Oregon, there has been a huge spike in the number of young children, under 10 years children of the virus. And a lot of people have talked about uh, daycare centers. They were a source of that, but actually it was through community spread in Oregon that this spike has occurred. So it tends to disprove to a great degree, in fact, this idea that younger children can't or are way less susceptible to getting the virus. And the same thing was discovered with a big, huge, actually, outbreak in Texas uh, right around the same time, and that was mainly centered in daycare centers. You know, uh, you can't really blame them for that, but they actually, I think they were a little foolhardy about thinking that the research was more on their side than it really was, and, and then real life really kind of disproved this. But here's what we have to look at uh, with their proposal, and that is that what then is the trade-off between reopening school and the fact that that, in, during a pandemic, during a raging pandemic, threatens the lives not only of those kids, but of staff, in the schools, as well as their parents, through the kind of contacts that everyone comes in contact with, the school being the mediating place for that, and compare that to the harm that's being done to kids through distance learning. The answer, it seems to me, is that you have to err on the side of safety, and the answer is that you have to do better with the distance learning. I mean, let's face it, it was forced upon teachers by the pandemic in March. They had to do it right away. Now they've had some experience with it. There needs to be, and there is, much discussion among teachers about how to improve that program. I'll I'll get into that a little bit later. And then, by the way, finally, the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics has now, with teacher unions, said that during this pandemic, that it is too dangerous. They have said that you really can't open schools if it's too dangerous to open them because of the extent of community spread of the virus. So they have actually backtracked on their report from before and basically taken the side of those who say you have to err on the side of caution as far as school reopening is concerned. And then the issue of working parents, I mean, if you look at other countries, Unlike the United States, in those countries, in Europe especially, working parents were paid either by the employers, by the government, or both. They were given income support to stay home with their students. That is the sort of thing that still needs to happen in this country, and and I'll talk about how the unions, the teacher unions, are calling for that. And the issue of what to do about the child care for essential workers is still a problem that needs to be worked out. That's something that I think needs, needs a lot of thought. I think it's really funny, too, because it's almost as if there was this little light bulb that went off in the heads of our uh, of business owners, but especially the government, and maybe not or should, is, oh, yeah, they're going to need to have somebody look after the kids, but we need them back at work. <laughs> right. But now, one, one thing I didn't mention, Susie, was about school districts, that school districts have actually been under a lot of pressure to open because the state The latest state budget actually had language in it that kind of favored in-person learning over distance learning. And and many districts interpreted the language in the bill as that they weren't going to get funding for their districts if they went to distance learning. That apparently has been clarified, and especially with the virus going on right now, it looks like that, you know, districts are backtracking on that. And apparently this because the state government has said that they could do distance learning after all. And I want to, you know, if we get time, I know there's a lot I want to get through with you, but if there is time, I'd like to go back to, you know, some of the, you know, ideas good and bad that they have about how to reopen, like, you know, some of them are saying having tents with no walls because outdoors you're more safe, but then of course, in a lot of places it gets too cold or it rains. (laughs) So there's a lot of ideas, but all of them are going to cost a lot of money. And that's what was not being provided here, as you've said, Joel Jordan, compared to uh, other countries that have really stepped up and done income support. And yet in this country, it's more yo-yo. You're on your own with a little bit of support, but that's going to end soon. So, all right, let's move to the to the fight because I, I want to get there. And what are the teachers unions doing? 
How are they fighting back? You know, and we know that it's teachers who are pushing back and they're doing it not just because they themselves are at risk, but because, uh, and their students, as you've laid out, Joel Jordan, but also because many of them, you know, have extended families, including parents or others with underlying vulnerabilities. So this is really an issue of, you know, faculty welfare, I think. So what's going on there? So the National Education Association, which is the larger of the two teacher unions and the American Federation of Teachers, have basically focused on lobbying. They focused on, especially on saying, quite rightly, that school districts do not have the funding for the kind of virus prevention measures that will be needed to make schools more safe. So just to give you an idea of some of those measures that they're calling for, you could see how ex- expensive they might be, is they call for six-foot social distancing. Well, that means like smaller classes. You have to hire more teachers. You, you have to fit fewer kids into a room. You would have to have everyone have face coverings and personal protective equipment. Schools, many of them are old, have no windows, need to have adequate ventilation, according to doctors' advice. Frequent hand washing and what that takes, cleaning and disinfecting. All of these kinds of measures are extremely expensive, and they have been focusing on that at a time when maybe it appeared to them that the virus was under control. I don't know why they would have thought that, but that's what the implicit idea would be behind that, that uh, things would be okay to open as long as these measures were funded. The problem has been that there's really been no organized fight back around this, because what teachers, educators have been facing is the prospect of opening school under increasingly unsafe conditions, and there's been no real organized force to really say, we're not going to do it. So that enters the California Alliance for Community Schools, which is a coalition of the, as you said earlier, 10 of the largest urban local unions in the state. And they have done is basically set some conditions for reopening the schools. And if they're not met, the idea is that educators would refuse to go back to school. And they have raised certain conditions. These are not just demands, but actual bottom line conditions. One is that The community spread has to be eliminated and the the virus has to be brought down to manageable levels. We're not even close to that now. Even if the virus levels off or even goes down a bit, we're not even close to that. So it says to be safe, you have to have the suppression of the virus has to go on. And combined with that, the testing and tracing that I talked about earlier. In other words, they're saying we have to go back to the May 2020 CDC guidelines. They're saying in order to even think about going back to school. And then, and even then, then we have to have the funding for these doctor-recommended prevention measures that I just mentioned. So that, that's the first thing that they're saying. And there's going to be, throughout, that's going on now, there is a pledge that's beginning to circulate uh, among educators in these locals, in these uh, local unions, a pledge to refuse to work unless these conditions are met. A second thing they're saying is uh, what I mentioned earlier, that we would focus and concentrate on building a robust distance learning program that would address the social, uh, emotional, and mental health issues that kids face, that there would be equitable internet access, parents would be engaged, improved services for English language learners, and more. It's the second part of this program, and the third part is the common good demands, that is, that would hold parents harmless, continued a continued $600 a week unemployment benefit boost, which unemployed workers are now getting, and other income supports, paid sick and family leave for all workers, appropriate wrench and mortgage forgiveness, free and universal COVID-19-related medical treatment, increased funding for public schools, public health, and other needed services. In other words, the kind of demands that would require taxing the rich such as Proposition 15 does, of taxes corporations, corporate property in California. It's going to be on the November ballot. And that we should repurpose funds from prisons, which take up an enormous amount of the California budget. Repurpose funds for police and prisons to schools and to health care and to other needed services. That's the kind of program that the CACS is, is fighting for. And then its strategy then is to take that program and fight for it both within district bargaining with the district, involving members in the discussion, and also 
bringing in parents into the discussion. So far, the, the kinds of discussions that we've had, that locals have had with parents have been very good, especially black and brown parents are extremely concerned about the health effects on their kids going back to school. And this program actually speaks to that, that immediate concern, but also about uh, their needs as well, the needs of the parents and their families. And so far, this is having a very good effect. We're having UTLA, Teachers Union in Los Angeles, has come out now basically saying it's unsafe to go back to school. We have to talk about distance learning and improving it and calling on the district not to open the schools. UTLA came out with that just two days ago. A lot of other districts that had been seemed like they were hell-bent on reopening, there have been two things that have been going on. One is the unions have been countering and saying we, we only want to do it when it's safe. We can, will consider a work stoppage of some kind if you insist. And, of course, the virus itself, which is so out of control in California that it's really making it very obvious to more and more people that reopening schools under these conditions is, is not a good idea. But there are challenges because what happens when the cases go down a little bit? They may close the schools for a few weeks, maybe a month or two, but then they go back, they go down a little bit, and then maybe the unfortunately the same forces that were calling for reopening of the schools will be back. They'll be back. And the question will be, how do the unions relate to that? And I think hopefully from the experience that we've had now that just a little bit of mitigation doesn't solve the problem of this virus. There has to be much stronger measures taken that the teacher unions along with other unions, anti-racist community organizations like Black Lives Matter, parents and community groups, student groups can unite together around a program like this that speaks not only to the issue of reopening schools in the immediate sense, but actually speaks to the long-term needs of working people in the country and in the state. We don't have a lot of time, but I just wanted to maybe get you to comment a little bit more, Joel Jordan, on this is really good because the, the program that you've laid out that the unions are pushing for are community-wide. It's not just, as you said, it's everybody needs income support, continuing the $600 unemployment, internet support, and you talked a lot about the uneven impact on black and brown families. And we know that in California, that's the majority of kids in public school. And those are the ones that are hit the most. And just a few weeks ago, I had uh, high school seniors on to talk from Dorsey High School and Hamilton High talking about defunding school police and putting that money into more counselors and other sorts of, uh, you know, uh, social workers and other things so that kids are t- treated as students and not suspects. But all of this is a little bit related in terms of the pandemic. And I just wondered, given what you've laid out and the amount of money that it may cost, and that even more if we look at today's New York Times and talking about having plexiglass separators, which you could maybe imagine at high school, but not in grade school, once they go back to school. But the, the funding is there. We saw that when they opened the first, the first time. So uh, maybe you could just quickly comment on those aspects of majority, minority, and also those who may not have been able to access public support because they're undocumented parents and they're in a very difficult situation, just sort of to wrap up, you know, in terms of the support that you think is going to be out there for these measures? I would start with saying that one of the problems that we have with our social movements in this country is that they tend to be very siloed, issue by issue. So for the most part, and it was very fantastic, and it is a fantastic development of the development around against police repression and the calling for defunding of the police. That issue is uh, an extremely important racial justice issue as well as social justice issue. The thing is that that issue, the issue of black lives, is magnified and amplified through the effect of the, the virus on black and brown people who are disproportionately affected. The twice as many black people, twice as many brown people are killed by this virus and are affected by it, as well as many more of them tend to be essential workers who are much more vulnerable, that is, because they're, they're working, than those who are sheltering in place. And so what really, I think, needs to happen in the first instance is the coming together of the movement against police repression of black and brown people and other people of color with 
a movement for stamping out this virus on a racial and social justice basis, which means actually addressing not just the effects of the virus itself, well, that's extremely important, the, the need for universal health care, for health care that everyone can afford, that would be free and universal, like they have in Europe, in most countries in Europe, but also to fight for economic issues that will be with us during this extended recession, depression, where the levels of unemployment are the highest we've seen since the Great Depression. And so that is a challenge that I think the left has to address is how to build the coalitions, the grassroots coalitions, not the, you know, astroturf top-down coalitions, but bottom-up coalitions that actually involve the workers that are involved, the workers that are affected, and especially who are most affected by this and working families, in coalitions that can begin to demand the kind of funding, not just from the state, but from the federal government. They gave trillions to the banks in the last quote-unquote bailout They can do that again. But what we don't have is the kind of movement yet that can make that happen. And that's what that's what our greatest challenge is, in my view, is how to build a movement that can create the pressure to force the state and federal governments to to tax the rich, to provide the funding that is needed for the working class and working families. Well, Jordan, thank you so much. We have to leave it there, but I'm really pleased with the way that you laid out the case against school reopening and some of the alternatives and the way that it can be fought on uh, that will be supported, my guess is, by the vast majority. And I want to thank you for joining us again. I'm beneath the surface, Joel Jordan. He's a retired Los Angeles Unified School District high school teacher and the former UTLA, that's our United Teachers of Los Angeles Director of Special Projects. He's currently helping to coordinate the California Alliance for Community Schools, and that's a coalition of many of the largest urban teachers unions in the state. And as you've heard it right here, talking about the way that teachers unions can fight for safe reopening when it's possible. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. And don't go away. When we come back, we're going to do the university case with Constance Penley. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Continuing this discussion of making the case against the reopening of schools from now kindergarten right through university and graduate school, while the pandemic is not leveled, but in fact is surging. And we just heard from Joel Jordan. And now I'm very pleased to have Constance Penley with us for the very first time. She's a professor of film and media studies at the uh, University of California in Santa Barbara, just down the road. But most importantly for today, she's the president of the Council of UC Faculty Associations. And that's an independent faculty advocacy organization representing the economic or employment interests of faculty, in other words, faculty welfare, uh, before the university or the legislature as part of the Council of University of California Unions. And of course, with the encroachment of system-wide forms of privatization over the past several decades, what we're calling neoliberalization of the university, they have uh, begun to intervene more forcefully and typically in the UC Senate uh, concerns and working with leadership on issues issues of academic freedom, shared governance, questions of diversity, equity, justice, and guess what? All of that has to do with the pandemic. And as somebody who teaches at a private institution, I wish that we had that association with us. I mentioned Constance Penley is also professor of film and media studies at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, She's a founding editor of Camera Obscura, Feminism, Culture, and Media Studies, and the president, as I mentioned, of the Council of UC Faculty Associations. She's the author of among many other works, The Future of an Illusion, Film, Feminism, and Psychoanalysis. And there's a whole lot more if you care to Google her, but Constance, welcome to the show. And let's uh, let's begin by talking about what's happening at the university level and with UCs. In Thank the Russian- you, Susie, for uh, having me on today because we are all just in the middle of all of this. I mean, it is just kind of unfathomable struggle with so many complexities. But 
my favorite cliche these days is to say this is a time of much peril and much promise. So what we're trying to do, certainly in the University of California and California public higher education, which I can most authoritatively speak about, is, you know, how can we use this crisis, this catastrophe for higher education to try to further many of the projects that we were already working on. And I would say most prominently the effort to refund higher education, public higher education. And that's kind of first and foremost before any of the other, oh no, it's completely tied up with all of the other issues around accessibility, equity, diversity, and you know how we're going to make the University of California and California public higher education do all of the things it has typically done for the state of California. And, and just before that, you know, I saw something in the paper today that said that 27 states still spend tens of thousands more per prisoner than they do per student in their states. And that's, you know, as you mentioned, a moment of promise and peril. That's some of the promise now to turn things around. But I interrupted you. Continue. Oh, no, thank you for that. That's one of my favorite statistics to use when talking about university funding. Uh, Another one that a lot of people do not know about is that in terms of per student funding, the California higher education system is 49th in the country. So in some of our projects uh, to try to advocate for increased state funding or just getting state funding back to what it used to be when we had the uh, master plan for California higher education from 1960 when it was determined that, uh, I mean, we, we made this decision. We made this decision that we were going to have accessible, high quality education for no tuition. We just heard from Joel Jordan at the outset, you know, the sort of confusing array of plans to, you know, go back, not go back, open, not, and they were, many of them were based on the idea that the pandemic would not be surging, but leveling. And yet we're getting, you know, no leadership or leadership that just at all costs that comes from government and corporations to reopen the economy. And that's happening in universities as well. And I wondered if you could just lay out what the response is from California universities mainly and how confusing, let's say, or what the alternatives are. So can you basically just lay it out for our listeners so we know what's being offered? It has been one of the more confusing times imaginable uh, in terms of trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to respond to this pandemic? How are we going to reopen our universities? And of course, we have a different situation for community colleges, the Cal State Universities, and the UCs, because we have, I mean, they're, they're different sizes, they're different constituencies, but also with UC, you have uh, many more students in residence. So the question of, you know, how you can possibly reopen as an in-residence campus is especially difficult for uh, the University of California. I understand why the 23 campus Cal State system decided back in already in March that they were not going to try to be in residence. They were going to go all online. And this this was such a huge influence because they had already done the figures and they'd figured out that it was going to be something like $25 million a week to be able to do the testing that you would need to be able to safely reopen. And that was also incorporating some figures about what it would take to do contact tracing and isolation and all of that, which would be an even bigger issue for campuses like the UC campuses that are in residence. And so I 
follow all this closely. I mean, if you want to just, you know, you could spend the next year just reading everything that's coming out of the Chronicle of Higher Education, you know, just trying to track, you know, what universities are doing around the country. I mean, it's really confusing, too, because, you know, all our inboxes are inundated with ever-moving plans and proposals. And, of course, faculty are pushing back because, for one, that these proposals come without much faculty input. And I want you to, like, address what you see is actually doing because we've seen that, you know, even though most of the campuses are saying there'll be more online than anything else. They're still bringing students to live in the dorms in some cases. I know that's the case at UCLA. I don't know about Berkeley or it is at Stanford's got some kind that's private, but they've got some kind of plan, you know, using their four quarter system. The summer quarter was never much of a thing, but now they're going to have freshmen one quarter, you know, sophomores, the next juniors, the next seniors in terms of who's going to be in residence faculty are still pushing back everywhere. So maybe you could lay out just a little bit more specifically what right now the plan looks like at at the UCs. I would say that right now we have plan A, B, C, D, goes all the way to Z. And it is constantly changing because when we first started talking about, well, to what extent can we reopen doing it in person? That was at the moment where, okay, maybe we are starting to bend the curve. You know, maybe we are starting to get to a place where this is going to be manageable. And of course, that has now changed completely. And it is, uh, you know, we with no national leadership, no plan, whatever, uh, with everything just being pushed back to the states and then, you know, to the individual colleges and universities. It's as if you can't go for a day with having your idea of what the plan is. And one of the things that we are trying to do in in California, and this is something that the Council of UC Faculty Associations have tried to do, is where we resisted was the way we were initially forced to go online for the uh, campuses on the quarter system for the last two weeks of winter quarter and then onto spring quarter. And we were given no time to do this, to put our classes online. And we, they, we were told this isn't really online teaching. This is really just remote learning, just revamping your courses for remote learning. I have to say that our learning resources people, our IT people were fabulous. You know, I mean, they were just heroic. But this was done with no faculty consultation. And so one of the things that we so objected to uh, and have tried to fight and we're Certainly taking this issue up, and, and I'm bringing this up because this is, this is a big issue for us and for the thriving of public higher education. Okay, so we were forced to go on just, uh, it was like overnight, and we were forced to go on, again, with no consultation. I mean, with, with just like the University of California, you've got one of the biggest brain trusts on the planet. You know, so why not go to the faculty or the experts in how to do this? One of the things we most objected to was that to be able to go online, to radically revamp our courses and just in this emergency go online, we had to do it using third party private software and infrastructure. I mean, everything from Zoom, you know, which is often been called malicious malware by people who know anything about it, but also by assessment services like ProctorU. And so we are, we're having to use these private third-party corporate sources that offer no guarantee of security or privacy and corporations that also sell our students' data. 
So that's one of the things that we are very much working on, where we just felt that our teaching mission was outsourced to private corporations. And so when we are trying to figure out how we're going to do it, and however we're going to do it, it's going to be some hybrid blend as we go forward. But we want to be able to see that we're not just the instructors. We're not just people like delivering this curriculum, however imperfectly, but doing our best to deliver this curriculum. We want to be able to do it with programs and software and systems that we devise. We do not want to outsource this. So I'm, I'm raising that. I know that wasn't perhaps one of the things you thought I might be talking about. But if we are going to be a private university, if we are going to, I mean, if we're going to be a public university, and if we are going to continue uh, with the idea of shared governance, then we have to be, the faculty have to be very much part of how we are going to do this. Well, I just wanted to come in on that, too, because I run a semester system and we immediately went to online. Some faculty members weren't comfortable doing that, so they devised their own ways, you know, of having one-on-one conversations with by phone and then they got in trouble. And, you know, and it's it was chaotic, to say the least. And we made it through the semester. But some of the problems, of course, were that students, once they left to go home, had very different circumstances, sometimes no internet, sometimes very crowded home situations and not so good for being able to do the online uh, remote classes, all the rest of it. And those plans so far, I don't know how much they're being addressed, but in all of this, I think you raised the key point, Constance, and that is that faculty input is sort of the last thing that's being asked and and everyone is rushing, you know, to reopen or at least to bring students on campus. And so they've got all these plans that they might present to faculty members, but they never say why they're, what the rush is all about. And so that begs the question, of course, faculty saying, you know, especially this idea of it's okay to do uh, distance learning and remote learning, but the students are going to come back. And so that's about the dorms, right? And about the money. And so I just wondered, you know, what the UC, the Council of UC Faculty Associations is saying about that aspect, because it really does address the inequity that many of the students are going to be facing and trying to comply with these crazy new rules that might be very dangerous to their lives. Public higher education, California already has many, many inequities, you know, largely because of the pullback in state funding, which you referred to, and we do refer to as like the neoliberalization of higher funding. But also it it's, it's unequal because we simply just have not thought through any of the challenges, many of the challenges that Black Lives Matter and the abolitionist movement brought to us. And we need to do a lot of rethinking of what kind of access are we providing to our university when it is not able to be there you know, for the people who really need it. So, yes, I mean, there, there's so many questions just around, you know, what was happening with our students, you know, in trying to access this. And, I mean, I teach in the University of California, and I had students who were, they didn't all have proper computer equipment. They had horrible Internet access. You know, they were in homes that were... Uh, and, you know, often, uh, you know, they didn't have any place to be able to do their work. They were, had lost their jobs at the university, those who did like work-study jobs on campus. And they were using those to help their families out, you know. So, I mean, the, it, was, it was just extraordinarily difficult in every way. And I'm hoping that we're going to be uh, attending to that much, much more, just like who is even able to get access to the university. And I see that, you know, you forwarded me, Constance Pendley, a letter that the UC Faculty Association has uh, forwarded to uh, President Janet Napolitano. And now, of course, she's stepping down and there's a new 
president in town and people are very, uh, a lot of people are very excited about that or at least hopeful, Um, but it has to do, maybe I should let you explain it because it's more than just, you know, the inequities and racial justice issues, but also the xenophobia. There's been so much prejudice now and incidences against Asians because the president and his administration are trying to blame the virus on China, which once it gets filtered down into the population, gets diffuse and crazy, and there's all kinds of ugliness boiling up. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that in this letter. Yes, well, I heard Joel Jordan in the previous part of the interview talking about the pressure that's coming uh, from the Trump administration and from uh, corporate America as well to immediately reopen the schools. And we are getting the same kind of pressure from the Trump administration. And most recently with uh, what I'm calling his ice raid on universities, you know, where suddenly, I mean, it was just like so suddenly you know, we are told that the million international students, you know, on our campuses in this country, if they weren't able to be there in person to be able to take their classes, then they would have to drop out of the university, go to a university that supplied in-person classes, which I don't think there are going to be very many, and have to go back to their countries, which is very, very difficult for many of them. So this aren't that many flights either, but I mean, uh, yeah. So, and this is a really big issue. I'm so glad you brought it up. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So this is on the very face of it. It's a way to force universities to go back to in-person education. Okay. Why would you want to do that? The only reason is because that would show that, the pandemic is over, everything is back to normal, this all has to happen in the fall, just before the election. You know, so this is completely putting politics over science. You know, it is saying to the universities, we don't care about the health of your students, we don't care about the health of the staff, the faculty, anybody, you know, we just want to have this like Potemkin Village, you know, of universities thriving and functioning and, you know, completely open. Well, that is not going to happen. It's a way to just force universities to try to, you know, look as if things are normal and they are not. But the other thing is, this is completely part of the attempt just to rid U.S. of foreign nationals making it just almost impossible for them to do it. So it is the most cynical, it is the most cruel, it is the most xenophobic effort imaginable to do to universities. And so already, I mean, the very first thing that happened was that Harvard and MIT sued to stop this. Now the University of California is also doing this. And I see this as one of these, uh, we wrote our letter to Janet Napolitano, the current president of the University of California, and to the incoming president, the president-elect, Michael Drake, we wrote this letter to them protesting this ICE raid on our universities on the very day that Michael Drake was being, the announcement was made that he was our new president. But one of the things that we wanted to do in writing to both of them, we were hoping that Janet Napolitano, just as she's so proud of her legacy of supporting DACA, the DACA students, that she might, as she's going out, might want to see this as part of her legacy too, you know, to protect the University of California and the entire system and all of its international students. We only have about a minute left, and I just wondered in the last minute if you could just quickly describe what the fight back is from faculty and from the Council of Faculty Associations and Faculty Unions. So they aren't going to have a lot to say about I don't think about whether or not some students are living in the dorm, but they do about the way they conduct their classes. And maybe could you just kind of summarize it uh, because we don't have very much time left? We are trying to keep or or try not to be reactive, you know, to just respond to the crisis, even though we are every minute just trying to figure out, you know, how can we 
how can we support our students? You know, how can we get them through all of this? You know, but, you know, I mean, even to, you know, how are we going to get a little better at these technologies, you know, and how can we help deliver these educational, how can we help develop these educational technologies so that, you know, we're not at the mercy of uh, private third party corporate technologies to do our mission here. Uh, But also we've got to keep it within the context of saving public higher education itself. You know, we can't let this pandemic, we can't let this political crisis as well as medical crisis, we can't let it kill the idea of funding public higher education and making public higher education truly available to everyone. It must be within that overall project. Constance, there's there's something else too, because the traditional response of the universities has not been very good and they're under a funding crunch and they're under a lot of pressure. I think you have some further thoughts about, you know, from the faculty association about what they shouldn't be doing. Yes, when we are being asked to respond to this crisis, when we are being expected to figure out how to continue doing what, in this case, the University of California does and its teaching and research mission, one of the things that we're trying to do is confront the university's default position whenever there's a crisis, which is austerity and cuts. Rather than trying to think about how the university could more forcefully advocate for state funding, and of course, in this case, we need you know huge amounts of federal funding too to get us through this crisis, saying, well, you know, the university, the days of state funding of public higher education is over. There's no public will. There's no political will. That is not the case. The case is that the university has not been nearly aggressive enough in going after that state funding. I was going to say, you said at the very beginning that we're at a moment of promise and peril. And one of the things that I saw that's happening in Europe and elsewhere, we've seen the neoliberalization of universities and this, of course, onset of administrative bloat is a questioning about the finances of of the university and what costs the most and what's most important. And especially now, given that it's going to be a lot more expensive to make the universities safe once they do reopen in a pandemic, unless it's completely controlled and there is a vaccine that's effective, there is this kind of questioning going on. And I wondered if you you have anything to say about it and what an issue that could be for faculty organizations to fight on. The Council of UC Faculty Associations, one of our main projects uh, has been the project to reclaim California's master plan for higher education. This plan, which now seems like so wonderfully utopian, and it was, you know, from 1960 to develop this plan for a three-part system of the community colleges, the Cal States and the UCs that would be articulated and would be free. Okay, so we have been working on this, developed a white paper around a policy paper six years ago and have been trying to get various kinds of legislative buy-in as well as just, you know, a public buy-in too. And we never expected, okay, and that, that had been a bit frustrating, but we never expected that tuition-free and debt-free college was going to become part of a national conversation. Certainly, this happened with the two progressive Democratic presidential candidates, and now is part of legislative bills, and it looks like something that seemed like just such a utopian dream could actually happen now. One of the things that most struck me about all of this, though, was that it's helped us to realize the possibility of possibilities. But also in California, we can use this very opportunistically. We can say, okay, there's the college for all movement. And we can say, hey, 
in California, we've already done proof of concept of college for all with the master plan for higher education. We already had tuition-free, debt-free college. And we made that plan the cultural and economic engine of the state of California. So if you want to know how to do it, you know, we've already proven it can be done. Everyone, thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there. We've run out of time, but uh, it was a terrific uh, wrap up of what's happening in the case against, you know, the rush to reopen the universities. And I've been speaking with Constance Penley. She's the president of the Council of UC Faculty Associations, and that's an independent faculty advocacy organization representing economic and employment interests of the faculty around the uh, California. She also teaches at UC Santa Barbara. She's a professor of film and media studies. You can look her up. She's the author of Future of an Illusion, Film, Feminism, and Psychoanalysis, and many other works. And thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio, Constance Penley. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.